Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Can Marketing Save the Planet? Today, Michelle and I are delighted to be joined by Andy Last, who is co-founder of Mullen Low Salt. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, guys. Great to be here. So let's kick things off, Andy, with a bit of an introduction to yourself and the work you guys do. Yeah, so uh, we founded uh, SALT as, a, as an independent consultancy, a purpose and sustainability consultancy, 20-odd uh, years ago now. Um, so before it was a thing um, for most people. And uh, we've worked with big brands and organizations over the years. Probably Unilever was, was our, has been our sort of longest-term client, and they were obviously uh, been one of the forerunners in this space. And we became part of Mullen Lowe in 2017. Um, really so we could have more impact uh, and certainly to be part of a marketing services organization where I believe um, a great deal of change can be affected. So that's why we did that. I've written a couple of books uh, on the subject, um, Business on a Mission, How to Build a Sustainable Brand, um, which hopefully is a, is a useful guide to marketeers on, on how they can uh, do just that. Fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned there that, you know, this is looking at the value that marketing can bring. I mean, that's our view from Can Marketing Save the Planet? Mm. Gemma and I are marketers. Um, and when we were researching and writing sustainable marketing, how to drive profits with purpose, because we were concerned, uh, you know, about this was new to us. You know, this wasn't something that we'd been a part of for, for 20 years, Andy. You yeah. know, this was this was us kind of getting our eyes opened to some of the, the 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 kind of very real and urgent challenges and of course the role that marketing plays from a kind of negative perspective in that driving consumption yeah. um kind of unconscious consumption really in in many ways and and as marketers not really thinking about those wider consequences so in your experience how has that played out with working within organizations have you actually worked with is it the marketing teams that you've focused on i mean we've worked with all sorts of departments probably more marketing than than anything else and certainly over the last five years very much with marketing but worked a lot with corporate affairs uh, departments with the uh, chief execs office where they're dealing with the reputation of the business now clearly corporate reputation and risk is one driver for organizations to engage in environmental and social issues, uh, the marketing opportunities that presents, and then the risks on the sales function, for example, if you're dealing with consumer goods and you've got retailers um, telling you we're only going to list your product if um, you are in line with our own climate pledges. So the sales function is is a key player there. Um, certainly with sustainability departments, they have come into organizations and hopefully will go, but you know, they are there for a transition period, I would hope. Um, so we've worked with all sorts of departments. We, we came in in the first place through through marketing, really. Well, but maybe it was reputation. So I, we were, I, I'd grown up in um, near Liverpool, uh, very near Port Sunlight, which is where William Lever founded his business. And he created a business that sort of famously, like, like a number of those Victorian industrialists, had nice accommodation for his workers. Um, like the sort of model villages like they were at Bourneville with Cabrian and those sort of things. So there was a kind of social good element to it. 
Uh, Lever created brands like Lifebuoy Soap, which, as the name implies, was about saving lives. It was making soap affordable um, to uh, the masses and people who were who were dying in in, in slum dwelling in in Liverpool, the second city of the empire. Mass migration there, yeah. um, people living in, in in slum dwellings, not able to look after themselves. He made soap affordable for them to literally to save lives. So I grew up with that notion that business could be a force for good socially. And then came back in into Lifebuoy in the early 2000s and to see the programs Lifebuoy was running around the world. But it may be forgotten that there was a link into business. They were almost being run as philanthropic exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, I went sort of slightly through the corporate reputation door. There was a CSR department saying, is this a nice story we can tell? And actually, once you got in there, you realized it was brilliant but if it stayed in csr if it stayed in the kind of corporate comms it it wasn't getting into the heart of the business and an organization like unilever marketing is the heart of the business and so what we did is took that concept of a soap bar saving lives and then getting involved in partnerships with unicef and usaid and the world bank and whatever and put that into the heart of the brand key and that's where the power Came so I think it doesn't always come in through, hasn't always come in through the marketing door but marketing is where I, I think the greatest change can be driven certainly and and you talk about you know CSR and you talk about social impact and doing social good and I think a lot of people when they think sustainability they automatically think planet and, and yep. the environment don't they and, and not the fact that sustainability is about actually delivering well being for all and when you look at the sustainable development goals you can see the absolute breadth of what we need to deliver on. Uh, as we move forward and and with that purpose is is a word that a lot of organizations are are now looking back to aren't they of of what well why are we here and why do we exist now that sustainability yeah. is rapidly rising up the uh, the gender for everyone so you know you guys call yourselves or you have have it you know yeah. on on your website end to end purpose specialists so you know, how does an organization uh, embed sustainability at its heart? Because Michelle and I are constantly talking about the fact you can't you can't bolt this on as an afterthought. You can't take your current strategy and just just add a couple of slides. It doesn't work like that, does it? So how people how try. They do. They, they do. They do all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but how do you actually embed sustainability at the heart I, of your organization? Yeah. So I, th- I think there's 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 a couple of questions in in there. Um, one is from a strategic point the, the word purpose is is horribly misused and, mm-hmm. and diluted and strengthened and means different things but for me it, it, there's two things in there one is purpose strategically why does this organization exist and frankly any organization that's been around for a hundred years has probably got a really good purpose mm-hmm. they don't always recognize it they don't always live to it they drift away from it and new marketers come in and want to do different things but that strategic understanding of what our reason to exist as an organization or a brand is, what is the the role we fulfill and who are our audiences that we do that for. I think that's a sort of strategic view of purpose. And then there's certainly what, when we started off, we were very clear that purpose was about delivering a social value over and above the core product. And that I, I think that social value is where there is a huge opportunity for brands uh, and businesses to be a force for good. Um, but it's also that social externality that that you're talking about, uh, Gemma, with the um, 
the sort of broad definition of sustainability, which is the, the those social and environmental externalities, yeah. which I don't think a business can afford to forget now. I think you could have got away with not addressing them 10 years ago. You certainly can't now. So that all those social factors and environmental factors that relate to your business, businesses now have to address them and report on them. Uh, and what we try and do is help help them see the, the positive opportunities in doing that. Uh, and again, I think the marketing department is, is central to that. Fantastic. And, and, and it's, you know, that's when, that's when we had our eyes opened. Um, because, as you, I mean, and also marketing and, and business really are so inextricably linked, aren't they? I think this is, yes. as, as you said, you know, Unilever is a marketing focused organisation. And I think most businesses are. I mean, you need customers, you need products, you need, you, you know, you need, you need, we all need to have marketing as a focus, but for some organisations, marketing is almost bolted on as well, and it isn't really embedded strategically yeah. across the value chain. And that's that's a real challenge. I mean, we hear it. Yesterday, I was at you know a a, a conference and uh, speaking with a lot of architects and and people in in that space, and it was quite interesting when I was talking about sustainable marketing. They're like, "Ooh, marketing and sustainability isn't that a juxtaposition?" Mm. And and it's kind of like, yes, I can see where you're coming from, but you know, really, this is about sustainable business and embedding sustainability in the heart of organisations, and then and then talking about it. Yeah, I think marketing has to be about understanding your market. Yeah. First of all, and if a business doesn't understand its market, it's in trouble. Um, and the market is changing rapidly yeah. at the moment for all businesses. And it's, I think, uh, it, it's um, it's a misunderstanding to think all consumers are suddenly demanding, you know, products that that keep us within 1.5 degree targets. Um, they're not, um, but there are, retailers who are, there are investors who are, there are regulations and reporting requirements that are, they are all part of the market in which you're operating. So the marketing department needs to understand what's happening there and the change that is happening and change happens gradually then suddenly. Yeah. So the, these sort of gradual trends, it's not like, you know, the civil rights movement has been going for a very long time. You know, the, the, the legislation really embedding civil rights in the states for example is is late 60s black lives matter you know sort of came hugely to the for, uh, to the fore with, with with george floyd and and during the covid crisis which i don't think was a coincidence but it wasn't like that hadn't been around as an issue for a very long time but it had suddenly it changes and i think you know the 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 protests we're seeing around Qatar uh, and civil rights there and lgbtq plus rights yeah. there those rights have been around for a long time i think the moment has changed on those. I think that the, the gender issues that came to the fore with Me Too, that's changed now. And we're seeing the same change happening on environmental issues. So the fact that um, I think what's happening on fossil fuels within the marketing services yeah. industry at the moment, the fact that they're almost becoming toxic for ad agencies to talk to. And Shell, you know, go back five years, Shell would be the celebrated client of any agency they'd be talking about them in their credit yeah. that that's changed so the marketers have to understand the market in which their products are operating which is changing and then to understand how to talk about them and how to talk about it is becoming increasingly complex because of green accusations of green greenwashing and and legislation coming in there and then that sort of marketers have have this this difficult job now of, of 
finding a treading a path between accusations of greenwashing and being paralyzed into not saying anything. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, that, and, and it's the marketing it. department that has to come up with those, find those answers. Yeah. 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 And and also it's, you know, that marketers having to understand the landscape that they operate in, absolutely critical because that's, you know, key stakeholders are in that landscape and those those elements are changing. Innovations are changing. Sentiment is changing, as we said. But also marketers, it's incumbent on marketers to be taking that intelligence back into the business, isn't it, for yes. strategic intent as well. You know, when we think about market research and yep. understanding those markets, it's about bringing that back in to inform the business because the business, who else is informing that business? You know, it isn't just about being enforced to make changes. I'm sure there are some industries where there are regulatory mm. enforcements, and we know about those that are forcing organisations to do that. But actually, marketers can see the opportunity. This isn't seen as, a, oh, we need to do this. It's like, wow, look at what we could be doing yes. um, and look at how this could be shifting. You know, it's quite an exciting time to be a marketer if you think about the significance With that. of that. Without question, so just a couple of examples on that. Um, so as I said, we've, we've worked with Lifebuoy Soap for a, for a very long time. And one of the great things, they, they, were, they obviously started off trying to save lives through promoting hand washing. It sort of drifted away from that sometimes over the years and got into sports, sponsored all sorts of you know, yeah. different areas. Invented the word BO, by the way, which was one of their ad campaigns um, in the, the 40s, I think it was. And... Once we started saying, look, these amazing partnerships and projects you're doing aren't CSR on the side, they need to go into the heart of the brand. And, and there were some brilliant leaders inside Unilever who pulled it right into the heart of the brand key. Once that happened, one of the, the, the best things I saw are the examples of exactly what you're talking about is, is on the innovation pipeline. Yeah. So once this central thought that Lifebuoy exists um, to help um, families stay healthy, and in particular, the, the ad guys came up with a brilliant line about help a child reach five. It was all about helping kids reach their fifth birthday. Once that was put at the heart of the brand, then the innovation fell in line with that. So I remember there was a uh, there was something coming through, a really interesting product coming through the pipeline, which was about um, tackling uh, a liquid light bulb that would tackle acne in teenagers. Great, but not to do with that heart of the brand. And what that then switched, the innovation then, switched to a, uh, a, a liquid hand wash that turned green when kids wash their hands for more than 30 seconds. And it was Hulk, it was a deal with Marvel and Hulk was on the thing. And that gets kids washing their hands for more than 30 seconds. So that's, that innovation was, came from that, that core purpose. And then the other innovation, if I look, you know, we do a lot of work with Kimberly Clark, who are a great company, great brands. They're in paper. Now, that is potentially quite a problematic area. And the research that is being driven by sustainability to identify new fibers, new ways yeah. of, of making paper is brilliant. Who wouldn't want to be involved exactly. in that? Now, and then it's that necessity, but, uh, you know, the, the old cliche necessity is the mother of invention. But there's, there's amazing innovation being driven um, by marketing, understanding what's, what's happening and, then, yeah. and pushing that into R&D. Yeah. And, and I guess you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, change change happens very quickly uh, once it gets going. And, you know, we're seeing that more and more people are turning away from things like the fast fashion industry, or at least we hope it seems to be the tide is turning there, although not fast enough. But, yeah. you know, we're talking to you on the 25th of November. It's Black 
Black Friday and, you know, the predominant message is is buy, 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 buy. And uh, in 2020 alone, Black Friday uh, emitted 429,000 tonnes of carbon, uh, which means nothing to, to the majority of people, but it's the equivalent of 435 return flights from London to New York. So, you know, we still have, I, I mean, I can't believe it's still around in 2022, but we still have these mass scalable uh you know sort of events in the year the fact that black friday still is a thing um do you think do you think organizations are doing enough because it's about scale and pace now isn't it i think it's interesting so i think we are seeing things change now the whole world ain't going to change overnight and we can't demonize business either because the great steps forward in that humanity has made over the last couple of hundred years, a lot of those in terms of living standards, life expectancy, all those things, a lot of that has been driven by business. Business in itself is yeah. not a bad thing. And we need to, the, 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 what business does in, in terms of harnessing people with a common goal to effect end results is, is second to none. Now, all the externalities coming in need, now need to ensure that it's in line with what human existence requires um and that will happen but i and i think we're beginning to see things i'll be um at least the figures about what black friday causes in emissions are being talked about now there is currency about that it isn't yeah. stopping black friday overnight but it's being talked about i think flight shame is a really interesting phenomenon post-covid when we all stop flying i think that that covid moment we'll look back on as, as the trigger for so much change and the fact that you know, none of it, you know, we're all flying around all the time and suddenly we weren't. And that does make you think, well, do we actually need to? And people beginning to be a bit wary about posting images of weekend breaks on their Instagram because, you know, they're a bit embarrassed that flight shame, sort of hashtag flight shame, those sort of things. So I think those things are coming through. They won't, it won't be overnight that, that, that things like Black Friday stop. But I think there is a growing understanding of the lack of the, the, the danger of consumption at all costs. I think what's really interesting as well, post-COP and certainly in the UK, this sort of beginning to question whether growth is what we what societies want. Yeah. And I think that that will come through. And I think marketers, I, I would like to see marketing focusing on business performance and and that might be you still go for profit and then different margins and, and maybe sell less but at a higher rate and a higher rate that maybe goes down the supply chain so it's not based on on cheap slave child labor yeah. at the bottom of the chain all those sorts of things so yeah I, i'm not massively celebrating black friday today though yeah, and you talk about flight shame. I mean, it, it's become a bit of a thing, as you say, but it, it's it's about all modes of travel, isn't it? And we've I've got into many a debate about the fact that you can fly somewhere still, but you've got to think about all your other modes of transport. You know, how often do you drive versus walking yep. and stuff? It's all about a balanced view, isn't it? Sustainability. We need to make more informed choices and we just need to have a greater understanding of what we do and what our organizations do and, and how much impact that has yeah. on the environment. So, you know, yeah. I'm all for a balanced view, all for a balanced view. Well, I think if you, um, if you, if you live with young people, either, you know, you, they're coming at it all from school. If, if you're, you know, in a marketing agency where you're looking to hire bright, young, creative talent, they're yeah. coming with Absolutely. questions. So I think it's, 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 it's coming. Yeah. So who, in your view, is is doing well and, and why? 
Um, I think the ones who were ahead of this were driven by consumer pressure. So I think Unilever, um, I mean, people always talk about Unilever. I'm, I'm very fond of them as a business. And I think two things drove them to be a first mover, um, or, or three things perhaps. One is it was set up to do that. When they, you look back in the history books, that's what the, the, the lever bit, the soaps business in the UK and the, the uni, the, the, the margarine business in in the Netherlands were both set up to fulfill a social need, either around hygiene or around nutrition. So it was in there from the beginning. I think they were operating in commodity type categories, you know, around margarine and laundry powder and those sort of things where the days of, you know, innovation leading everything were beginning to be over. You couldn't get a laundry that washed anything anymore white and couldn't get any whiter so you did yeah. need to find other ways of building the brand and this notion of um, a social purpose to bring differentiation to a brand i think was was seen in a in a sort of low interest category as a really big opportunity for them and the third thing was if you're in fmcg you were at great risk of your consumer can easily go and buy from someone else next week it's not like a car that's being bought every five or six yeah years, which I think is one of the things that saved Volkswagen after the, the thing. It wasn't like, like with the consumer goods where you're having to win consumer trust every week. And these issues coming through around animal testing or um, a depiction of people in advertising or plastic packaging or, or any of these things, um, the consumer good, fast-moving consumer goods had to be ahead of the game because they were the ones at risk of, of sort of non-selection the following week. So I think they, they Unilever have always been good. The, the one example I always come back to is Nike in terms of um, a, a social issue and how they have been consistent at it, but also knitted it into the business model. So go back right early days of Nike, certainly early 70s, they started championing something called Article 9 in the States, which was about the equal provision of um, uh, sports facilities and schools for girls and boys. Yeah. So that at 72, I think, they, they started on that. And they, have, they were very clear on what the business benefit of doing that was. At the time, Nike sold predominantly to men. There was sort of 50% sort of market, a new market for them to go after. So tied into the business to encourage uh, women uh, to, to get into sport to buy their products. And they've taken that, that thought of gender equality and pushing and taken equality into other areas as well and been a real sort of campaigning brand consistently over what's that 50 years now on, a, on, on yeah. that issue and the broader issues as society evolves. So I think what, the, what they do is great. And at the same time, having to be very clear on, um, making sure the way they source their materials and all, and all that side of things, because they, as a, you know, we, we we buy trainers and then sports were relatively frequently. They're a, a great danger of new young audiences coming in and choosing someone else if they don't, if they believe that wearing that brand will lead them to be accused by their friends uh, yeah. or on social media of not being environmentally secure. Absolutely. And they, there was some pushback, wasn't there, some a while ago with Nike with regards to, I think they showed uh, young children stitching up footballs. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so, no, but Nike had to sort out its supply chain. Yeah. I don't think Nike was worse than anyone else. They had, they were vulnerable to it, and they're yeah. a, they're a high profile brand, and exactly. therefore 
they will they are at risk and the internet is driven the transparency of the internet has driven so much of this because suddenly someone is able to film in a sweatshop on a phone and go go around the world and and nike is at danger of that in the way that a lot of unilever's environmental work was driven by greenpeace attacking dove yeah dove was particularly bad but that was a famous brand and the accusations of hypocrisy were there the fact that you know the, the 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 backlash we saw about coke sponsoring cop 27. I don't think Coke were the main sponsor of COP27. They were doing some sort of side meeting. But of course, it's Coke, and that's the brand. And therefore, and, and all the campaigners are, are, are understand the power of marketing, too. Yeah, absolutely. And what you talk about there, you know, when you talked about those three key drivers in, in Unilever, there's also a, a leadership piece there, is there, around culture as well. Because, I mean, I've read Net Positive by Paul Polman. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a brilliant story. It's a brilliant book. It's a great narrative of the challenges and the practicalities and and that culture piece around behavior change i mean that was driven through i mean all 170,000 employees at unilever yeah. that they understood what this strategy was they understood where the business was and there was also this level of accountability that they had to be aligned with you know three things this three plus one plan that he famously talks about and you know that I've talked to people at Unilever and say was that a real thing and yes it was a real thing you know that they had to align their personal or their work with with this strategy and then one personal thing so the cultural shifts of this you know we talk about marketing being a great catalyst for understanding that landscape, driving that that kind of intelligence uh, back into the business for strategic intent, but also to drive this more holistically as a brand from a brand and organizational wider perspective, you've got to get the culture. You've got to get the culture shift in place, haven't you? Uh, you have, and you you cannot delegate that to the people team alone. And that's, no. that's not just on the, the HR team to sort out the culture that comes from the top, as you say, in, in the um, lead gen. And, and, and funnily, if you see this in lots of organizations, actually, the person who has got to the top of the greasy pole is there, isn't then thinking about the next job and is beginning to think about legacy. They've often got children at a certain age who are beginning to, you know, say, well, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. And, and certainly, uh, Paul was at that stage at Uli and, and his book with Andrew is, is very good. We, we had Andrew speaking at a conference, Andrew Winston, yeah. a conference a few weeks ago, and he absolutely talked to the leadership piece. And leadership is vital to that. Then everyone in the organization needs to see the leader saying, this is the direction we're going in and going public in it, not just saying it in internal memos, but sort of going on the record externally. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's critical to that. What was interesting at Unilever is you had this sort of very clear message at the top of the business. You had everyone, all the young people coming into Unilever were joining because of all this. So you had great enthusiasm at the bottom. And then you had the, the sort of middle of the company and that middle management and the people with their three plus one targets. And unless you align that, nothing changes. You know, people know, yeah. you know, the right thing to put on their LinkedIn post or whatever. But unless this is, I think when I was sort of thinking about talking to you today, this structural piece is what needs to happen it can't yeah. just be about marketing or hr initiatives or any of those things it has to be structured and it has to be around incentives yeah. and it has to be yeah. around saying these are your tides and, and by incentives not just sort of you'll get a bonus if you do this but say no this is this is your job this, this is, is what the is role. expected. yeah this is this yeah. is and, it. and if you're in marketing and don't understand those externalities around um supply chain and around 
climate change and, and social justice, then you're not doing your job. No, get educated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because how can you know? We were talking to when we interviewed Seth Godin recently. Mm. You know, he was he was talking about the fact that uh, you know marketing's role is absolutely to to be those drivers for change uh, within organisations as well as you know externally. And I think sometimes marketing almost forgets that it, it, we are the communication specialist. You know, we know how to tell a story. We know how to communicate things and. You know, marketing's role is absolutely in driving that culture change alongside absolutely. HR um, and taking it forward. So we've got a really important role. The other okay. thing that Michelle and I constantly discuss and get asked, uh, and again, it sounds a bit like, you know, we were talking about a lot about Unilever, but they were hit the same challenge by their their largest stakeholder, shareholder, yeah. weren't they? Which is... He's, well, how, he, wasn't their, he wasn't their largest. He was wasn't their, he? No, he was certainly their noisiest. I was going to say noisiest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, that shift from yeah. pure profit to, to balancing people, planet and profit, which we, we don't have a choice in, we have to do this, yeah. is, is really difficult for so many to get their heads around and and it's a conversation as I said we have over and over again because when you look at it the opportunities are huge if we take this forward aren't they not just you know for business but for for society and for the planet and and with that there there is there is also you know commercial opportunities that if we do this right uh, businesses can thrive so you know what sort of conversations are you having around that and what are your views on on I'm sure you get asked all the time well if well, why not take a hit on profit here? Well, there's yeah. cost savings, which have, is one. Well, f- for sure. So the the investment community and and the um uh, for the the second edition of my book, I interviewed um BlackRock for that, and that they are they might well be the biggest investor in Unilever. They're certainly the biggest investor in lots of uh, the, the know, biggest hedge on, fund management. Yeah, and yeah. they've got seven trillion dollars. Yeah. And trillion, you sort of say the word trillion, and yeah. you actually think what trillion means. It's How like, many notes is that? Yeah, yes. it's mind-boggling. <laughs> They're sitting on those assets, and they've been very vocal mm. about the, the need for business to have to address its environmental issues and, and deliver on social purpose. Uh, and the ESG requirements coming through legislation and from investors is is happening. And it's not happening because all these investors are suddenly, you know, they've suddenly found God. And, you know, and, no, and, it's a risk. Know, it's the massive risk yeah. and you, they cannot afford to leave their money in companies that aren't alive to this. Now, at the same time, purpose isn't about thinking, oh, yippee we can just say we're doing nice things for the planet and therefore we don't have to hit profits. It's no, The job is to understand the two and, and to deliver the two, to deliver profits in the context of this external environment. One of the, the things I don't know the answer to, and I think this, this is becoming this is a big question for me, and I'm not educated enough on it, which is that the vast majority of investment money in, in most of the, the, the companies we, we end up working with is, is held by pension funds, yeah. um, which is patient capital. Patient, pension funds aren't looking for quick quarterly yeah. gains. They're looking no. for long-term stable yeah. gains over a period of time. Now, so they're not driving the quarterly pressure. So who now, is? Well, it's it's the intermediaries. It's the way capital is allocated. Now, I completely believe you know that there should be free markets for capital, and therefore the money goes to the who's the most innovative, which is in the right sector, and and that allocation, free allocation of capital, is is critical to business and, and the force for good business can do in the world. How it is allocated, and the sort of day traders and the people sort of in the middle of the chain who are who are you know betting on sterling going down, that feels 
deeply problematic and then causing um, causing issues. But but businesses have to. And one of the things that I think marketers would do better to talk about improving business performance rather yeah. than the word growth, because I yeah, think absolutely. I think you can drive business performance and deliver for your shareholders and deliver results and and you do need the profit and purpose have to be balanced. And we have to remember it's that way around as well. It's not just saying you have to do good purpose stuff. You do need to deliver the profit as well. But that can be done in many ways, can't it? As you said, you know, this performance aspect is around often around efficiencies, around innovations, around circularity, around, you know, there are many other areas that marketers once educated and aware can be aware of and bring, you know, why are we, putting out this waste? Why aren't we reusing this? Why aren't we innovating in these areas? And I think those are interesting. It sets a new set of questions for marketers to be bringing into the business and and challenging. So without question, question, and I think things like the the shift to renewables is being driven by, accelerated by market forces. Yes. I mean, market forces can be an amazing change agent. They can be. Now we've we've talked Patagonia. No, we haven't talked Patagonia no. yet. So <laughs> when it comes to purpose, I mean, we talked about Unilever, and you, you're absolutely right. They always come up, and they are a great, you know, example. And uh, and I absolutely love uh, Paul and uh, Andrew's book, uh, which is which is great. Mm. And Patagonia, when it comes mm. to purpose, you know, started very much with purpose, and now have kind of changed. There was this enormous huge discussion lots of press about the way that they have really focused their attention on not just you know taking the the kind of the road they've, they've really taken a road less traveled haven't they around how they've restructured the whole business so that it is going to be sustainable but mm. really continuing to be a force for good even when the the founder is out of the business so i and i hope so and what I don't know is how different it is. As you say, there was a lot of press around. Yeah. It. And I'm, I think there's, so rowing back, one of the things that when I was writing my books was became very clear is that this tradition in kind of Northern Europe, in, in, in Britain and Scandinavia and, and, and Germany and, and, and the Netherlands and stuff of business and society kind of having a link and it was all right for business to engage in social issues is unbelievably different to the culture in the states mm. yeah and in the states it is that was a, a country founded on um business and, and doing business and the freedom to do business and also the, the the freedom for them to practice the religion they what they wanted to practice the the sort of puritans and the pilgrim fathers going over there and they built this country on um, you know, highly entrepreneur and going into the Wild West, sort of developing these things, working really hard six days a week. And then on the seventh day, you would go to church and praise your God because that's one of the reasons you went there for that religious freedom. And you would give a tenth of your money and you would donate. And that culture, you work really hard and then you donate afterwards, um, is is so strong still in the States, which is different from putting purpose and sustainability at the heart of a business and yeah. making the act of doing business itself healthier. And I think what, what we see in the States is still this culture of, well, you do business however you want to do it, make an enormous profit, and then you do good afterwards. And what, you know, the sort of what Bezos is talking about and what Gates did with the Gates Foundation, what Zuckerberg did with his, uh, is doing, talking about doing with his money. 
So I think there's always been that sort of philanthropy and altruism in the States that you have to give back money afterwards. And I think we're beginning to see changes in that. And the social license to operate of some of these big tech companies there is 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 being questioned. But it's a very different culture. And I, um, for a bit of Patagonia felt like it was almost part of that. But it was a step in the right direction right. of being ingrained into the business rather than just giving the money away afterwards. Yeah. Patagonia never really, they never called themselves a sustainable organization, did they? No. They were very careful. They called themselves a responsible organization. Yeah. And he's fabulous. Mean? And and, and Eve, Eve was has been uh is is incredible. And I think the other thing is is I used to irritate my eldest son by saying the only reason he's you know he would if he posts a picture of him with a Patagonia jacket, it's because it's a sort of symbol to, you know, other people about what yeah. You know, which it probably wasn't, and he certainly didn't want to hear that from his dad. But I think yeah. that that making Patagonia really attractive mm. that that was at the heart of it. It wasn't Patagonia. Young people weren't choosing Patagonia because it was good. Uh, you know, it was doing good. They were choosing it because it, it it was a symbol of you know I'm I'm sort of modern and I'm cool or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. And, and Irritating yeah. word I used to my son. Yeah. And Gen Z, you know, Gen Z are what thirty four percent of the global population. They're the biggest. If we need to stop calling people consumers, but they're the biggest consumer group in history, aren't they? Coming through, and they ultimately they they go to organisations which which align to their values. I think there's still yes. a bit of a an action intention intention action gap is still probably a little bit too high, but. But they you know, don't want to be associated with, with exactly. toxic things. No, that, that, status and affiliation. It comes back yeah, to that status that. and affiliation. And, if, and this is a generation and, you know, some would say, well, they're not going to be young people forever. They're like young people have always yeah. been sort of much more progressive. And then when the realities of mortgages and families and jobs and stuff kick in, they'll change. But I think what's different with that generation is they grew up with climate change as a reality, being taught it in school, understanding it, and with the sort of mass transparency of, the internet yeah. of of bad things being shared immediately, you know, toxic yeah. behaviours by businesses being shared immediately. Yeah. Oh, cancel uh, culture is very real. As, uh, well, I think yeah, the, yeah. the sort of the reality of cancel culture, and you know, the, there's massive issues around cancel culture, but the, the but the businesses are at risk of being cancelled today in a yeah. way they weren't. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know the biggest the biggest driver we have today is the fact that the planet we live on is is now you know. Uh, is is pushing back on us, and actually, we have taken way too much from it. And it's not a case of oh, it will, well, you know, it will come back. It doesn't need humanity. The it doesn't need will. humanity. That's it, a, the yeah. planet. The planet yeah. will be fine. That's what we that. say. You, you know, yeah. we keep saying, should we change the name of our podcast to "Can, can Marketing Save the Humans"? But, but that's <laughs> that, that's save the planet. Yeah. I mean, it's a less punchy title, but if you, it is. the title's good. But it but it's it's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, uh, Andy, we like to ask all of our guests the same quick fire questions to wrap up the show it's been absolutely great uh, speaking to you today but our first question to you is can marketing save the planet it can no it definitely can but business can because of yeah. the innovation and, and rise in in standards of living it, it, it can bring to everyone around the world and marketing is that link between the outs understanding the outside world and what business should be doing so yeah absolutely 100 percent. and what do you hope business look like in 10 years time um, definitely not sustainability as a separate department in businesses and that those externalities of, of carbon and fair wages in supply chains or all those things are factored in as, yeah. as, as a sort of business, uh, that, that there is no sort of 
cheap cheating fuel or labor in in yeah. in, in your numbers yeah i mean sustainability uh, and green the rise of green jobs is something that, again we've talked a lot about mm. because they're, they're becoming almost the legal departments based on the uh, yeah. cso's we speak to where yeah. they bottleneck everything so it's for everybody isn't it to 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 educate themselves and know what their what their role is in this yes um and finally if you were to give one piece of advice to others around getting started with sustainable marketing what would it be well well don't greenwash but equally don't be paralyzed and and that don't don't let the fear of greenwash paralyze you understand where you are where your brand or business is at be open about where you are on the journey and understand that the, the the strengths that you can talk about and the uh, the swords we talk about them, and what shields you need to have in place, and then um, and, and communicate around that. Fantastic, great. So, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing, Andy, and your books? Is there a place we can direct people to? Uh, you can definitely direct people to Amazon or our website, and that would be great. Fantastic. We'll make sure that all the relevant links are in the show notes. So that just leaves us to say a big thank you to Andy for joining us. And Gemma and I will see you on the next podcast very soon. 